Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church Podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. It's good to see you all. Last week, lead pastor of Summit Church, Pastor Todd Tyson, gave us a 30,000-foot overview of Abraham's story. He talked about God's promise to Abraham, Abraham and a strange character named Melchizedek. We'll hear more about him in a little bit. And how God tested him with his son Isaac. At the end of the sermon, Todd challenged us with this thought. We have been blessed to be a blessing to others. I don't know about you, but I've been wrestling with that all week and trying to sort out what that looks like for me personally. And for the next two weeks, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into Abraham's story. So last week we had a 30,000 foot view. We're gonna jump in a bit deeper. Next week, we're gonna be looking at Abraham's uh, offering of Isaac to the Lord. But before we get there, we have to discuss a strange character by the name of Melchizedek. What's so unique, at least in my thought, is that Melchizedek has a whole whopping two verses attributed to him in the book of Genesis. And that's the type of character who would ordinarily kind of disappear from the scene. But he gets picked up later uh, by the psalmist, David, King David, includes him in a major messianic prophecy in Psalm 110. And Jesus quotes from that Psalm in Matthew and the authors of, uh, author of Hebrew uses Melchizedek to mark the significance of Jesus's ministry. So he is not a character that disappears as we would kind of expect after just two short verses of mention. Uh, the author of Hebrews expounds for chapters on this unique individual, which is why we're taking a whole week on him. Two verses in Genesis and a story in a book that we're trying to cover in 14 weeks. We've dedicated an entire week to a guy with two verses because the New Testament has saw him out, saw him out, dedicated a good bit of time to him. And I think it's worthwhile for us to dig in. But to understand his significance, we have to get re-caught up with where we're at in the story. Uh, we have to recap some of the major movements that have been going on since the very beginning of Genesis 1. So we understand how Melchizedek plays into the grand narrative that's unfolding in front of us. If you remember way back to creation, Adam and Eve were created very good. But the sneaky serpent deceived Adam and Eve and they disobeyed. Their disobedience resulted in a curse, as well as being re relocated east of Eden, east of God's intention. But God promised that a seed from Eve would crush the serpent's head. We discovered that Cain and Abel were not the seed, that even a righteous man named Noah was not the seed, nor could the problem be fixed by starting over with Noah. And we also learned that collectively, we are unable to resolve the tension of the curse on our own either. And the Tower of Babel made that explicitly clear as we try to overcome some of our sin obstacles on our own. 
But Genesis 12 offers an important introduction to a new movement in the book. As the story as the story of Abraham begins, here's what God says to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. God, from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land, I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, there's a lot of good stuff in this opening promise to Abraham. God charges him to go out, to go forth into the land that he's going to show him, and he, he talks to him about the blessings that he's going to have, promises about land, and promises about a nation. But did you notice that last phrase? And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth. With all the stories that have followed Adam and Eve, the beginning of Abraham's story really marks our first real hope at arriving at the promised seed to Eve. We've been tracking through the story thus far with this tension, who will be the saving figure? Who is God going to rise up? And in the story of Abraham at the beginning of Genesis 12, we get a sneak peek, God saying there's hope here. Pay attention here. I'm doing something profound and important here. He sets up some really important foreshadowing with Abraham and his intentions. As Todd talked about last week, Abram and his cousin Lot had too much livestock for the land to support, so they part in different ways. They go in different directions. And we are told in Genesis 13, 11, that Lot set out towards the east. Remember, east is a sign of moving away from God's intention. It is therefore also a foreshadowing, kind of cluing us in that trouble is on its way. And indeed, trouble did come. Lot's captured in a war, and Abraham sends his men to get him back. Now, as the king of Sodom comes out to greet Abram, we're introduced to another figure who just randomly appears on the scene named Melchizedek. And let's read about him in Genesis 14, 18 to 20. There it says, Then, king Melch then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's the whole story of Melchizedek. Two short verses, one line, one talking moment, one blessing, two verses. Ordinarily, this is a character that not only whose name is hard to pronounce that we fumble on when we get there, we'll also never talk about him again. We don't think about this type of character again. He would ordinarily sit into the background of a host of other characters from the Old Testament whose names we also can't pronounce, who have a fleeting moment that get pulled up and then go away, but not Melchizedek. Melchizedek is different. David and later the author of Hebrews make big messianic connections about Melchizedek. Why? I can't help myself. I have to ask these types of questions. Why? What is it about Melchizedek that enables this man to reverberate forward 
for centuries in such a profound and important, significant way that he becomes a figure for us to understand what God has done through Jesus. There might not be a bigger anticipatory figure in all of scripture than Melchizedek for Christ. Why? Why this guy? Well, because God keeps his promises. Remember back in Genesis 12, did you notice what Melchizedek does for Abram in Genesis 14? He blessed him. And do you remember what would happen to those who blessed Abraham? We were told in Genesis 12, those who bless you, I will bless. Right? God makes this promise to Abraham out of all of the promises that we look at with Abraham's life. This is probably one of the more insignificant ones, ones that we don't pay attention to all that much. But he says, I will bless those who bless you. Because he blessed Abraham, Melchizedek was blessed. And that's why instead of becoming a forgotten passing figure like so many of the other two verse uh, one hit wonders, so to speak, of the Old Testament, the first, he, he doesn't. He resounds moving forward as a great figure for our understanding of what Jesus Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And the first person to take serious note of what Melchizedek had accomplished was King David in Psalm 110. I'm going to read for us the first four verses. This is what it says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is a psalm about Jesus. David opens up in this way of saying, the Lord, Lord, my Lord. And Jesus later confounds the Pharisees on this particular instance going, um, David is talking through here about the Lord, Yahweh, being his Lord and the promised Messiah saving figure, being the one that is going to rule in this magnificent way. And then all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, Melchizedek is reintroduced to us. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's priesthood came before the Israelite priesthood. It came before Aaron was established as a priest. Jesus was not a Levite. Like Melchizedek, Jesus' priesthood was established solely by God. He was set apart by God to be made a priest, not by lineage, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. David knew that Jesus' priesthood would be different. It would be a different order. He would be a different type of priest. It was not enough to talk about Jesus in the way that the other priests were talked about. It was not enough to lean in and say, he's going to be a priest like Aaron, or he'll be a priest like another Levite. David leans in and goes, no, 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 there's this other guy. There's this other figure. There's this other mysterious priesthood which God established, and this guy's name is Melchizedek, and the one who is coming is going to be like that priest, blessed by God, the God most high. After Jesus' death and resurrection, and the author of Hebrews, I keep calling him the author of Hebrews because we don't really know who 
he was that wrote the book. It might have been Paul. It might have been a lot of different figures. We're not really sure who wrote Hebrews, but the author of Hebrews is sorting through the Old Testament. Hebrews is a pretty big, pretty deep book that explains a lot of the Old Testament connection with Jesus. And this writer is thinking through the connections of the Old Testament to Jesus. And he reads Psalm 110, no doubt, of David, looks back at the story that we're looking at in Genesis 14, and writes chapters on this interesting character, Melchizedek. And we're going to read uh, a little bit of that, a little bit of what he has to say in Hebrews 7, 11 to 28. This is a longer passage. Bear with me. It's worth it. It's worth the read. We're going to read it together. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on a basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who have come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. This is an exciting passage. Would you like to know what Melchizedek's name means? Would you like to know what his name means? My king is righteousness. My king is righteousness. If I were to try to summarize for you everything that I just read in Hebrews chapter 7, I think the best phrase that could be said about Jesus in this comparison is, my king is righteousness. From these passages, three things stand out very clearly to me about the significance of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The first is Melchizedek is king of Salem. It's how we're first introduced to him in Genesis 14, 18. Many scholars believe Salem could be short for Jerusalem, and Melchizedek's kingdom stands as an anticipation of an even greater kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. This fact is at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus is 
our king. It's the fundamental basic principle of the good news proclamation. The good news is news. First and foremost, it's news of an event. And it's news that is good. And here's the news. Jesus is our king. There is a new kingdom. Jesus' resurrection inaugurated an eternal kingdom whose rule and reign has no end and knows no bounds. And this king of ours, this king of ours has established some beautiful values in this kingdom. He's laid out the rules, so to speak. He's laid out what he values, what is precious to him. He is ingrained into the bare basics, the fundamental fabric of what the kingdom is. And here's some of these values. Perhaps the most important of all the values is love. Our King Jesus is the greatest expression of love the world has ever seen or has ever known. His humility to take on human flesh, his suffering on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, all are markers of a profound love for us, a profound love for us. Justice. Justice is a value of Jesus's kingdom. Because you are loved by the king, you will be treated well in the kingdom. Y'all must be tired. This is exciting stuff. I just came in on a red-eye flight from California, and I'm a little bit more charged up about this stuff than what I'm hearing you be charged up about this. Justice is a value of Jesus' kingdom. And because you are loved by God, you have justice in this kingdom. No more suffering. No more suffering. No more pain, no more crying, no more sadness. These are all markers of the kingdom that has been established by our king. Grace, grace is a value of Jesus' kingdom. Although we don't deserve to participate in his kingdom because of what we've done, because of the things unfolded in front of us in Genesis chapter 3 and the ways that we have participated in them ourselves as well, Jesus invites us into the kingdom. Revelation 3.1 goes a bit further than that, just so you know. You're not just invited. He says, see my throne? Just as I've sat on my father's throne, come up here. You'll sit on my throne with me. You will sit on my throne with me. That is grace. That is unmerited favor and kindness. There is no other way to describe it as there is no reason that I should sit next to my king on his throne. I have done nothing to deserve that honor. None of us have. And Jesus, King Jesus says, come here. Come with me. Come sit with me. And mercy is a value of Jesus's kingdom. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've thought, forgiveness is available in Jesus's kingdom. And where there is forgiveness, there is freedom. Just want to make that clear. Where there is forgiveness, 
For the things that we carry, there is a spiritual freedom available to Jesus. Those that are in the kingdom of heaven, those that are in Jesus' kingdom, are free to the fullest expression of what freedom could ever mean. They are unlocked to participate in their humanity in ways that we can only dream about. Who would have thought that preaching on Melchizedek would become one of my favorite sermons? I wouldn't have thought it. Melchizedek was not just a king, though. He was a priest. This is unique because typically in the ancient Near East, priests and kings were separate roles. They did not intermix for some reason. But here in Melchizedek, he does. And he anticipates a greater intermixing of priest and king in Jesus. Jesus is our priest. And this is significant. It's one of the major features of the book of Hebrews. A priest intercedes on behalf of a group of people to God. One of their primary roles is to offer sacrifices to God. And the Israelite sacrificial system was quite complex. If you don't believe me, go read the book of Numbers and Leviticus and get back to me. There's a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of ways to do this right. And in many ways, that system created a covering of the sins. But the author of Hebrews notes and highlights for us how this system was imperfect. And here's here's the image that popped into my mind as I was thinking about this, probably because uh, I did this to my table. Think of a dining room table that has too many dings or dents. We've been renovating our house. I threw a big chip onto our, our granite, came flying when I was demoing our our house and it kind of ruined my kitchen table. I don't think my wife's forgiven me yet. But think of a dining room table, mine comes to mind, that has too many dings, dents in it. And you put a tablecloth on this dining room table, right? Because they're expensive and you don't have money just to go and spend another $2,000 on another table. So you put a cloth over it to cover it. The table covers up the dings and dents. Right? You don't see them anymore, but here's, here's the thing. They're still there. They're still there. And here's the other thing. The tablecloth is not as beautiful as the table was. Right? The grain of the wood, how it looked, this magnificent, beautiful carpentry that's there, and you put this tablecloth over top of it. It just doesn't, it doesn't hold up against the beauty of the real thing. The old sacrificial system, at least to the ways that my mind can understand it, is kind of like putting this covering on humanity that has a bunch of dings and dents in it that's not as presentable. Jesus' sacrifice, however, changes everything. Because his, his sacrifice does much, much more than just present a tablecloth over the dings and dents. His blood washes them away. His blood washes them away like they're not there. They don't exist anymore. The table's been made whole. There's no reason for a tablecloth, nothing to cover up anymore. There are no dents, there are no dings, there are no scratches. It is full beauty because of the blood of the lamb. Never to be found again. And by the body and blood of Jesus that's been presented in the throne room of heaven, it stands there as a sacrifice sitting for all time in front of our Heavenly Father. 
So that when he sees us and he looks down on us, he does not see a set of people who have been dinged and dented up by the effects of sin. He sees wholeness. He sees completeness. He sees very good, just as he created you to be. He sees his son, Jesus, there, who, by the way, has invited you up there with him. That's what he sees. Friend, this is tremendous news. And that would be news enough, but there's more. Part of what we see in this Melchizedek story is God is faithful. There's a faithfulness to Melchizedek and his promise that God didn't really have to put on display in this way, but he does. God makes his promise to Abram, right? I will bless those who bless you. And then Melchizedek goes on to bless Abram. And it's not for thousands of years that we as readers get to read back into the story to see God's faithfulness. But Melchizedek's blessing highlights something really important for me. All in all, out of all the promises made to Abram, this was probably the least significant one. And functionally, none of us would have ever have known if it had ever happened or not. But God stands behind his word. He said, Abram, I will bless those who bless you. And then you run into a character two chapters later, cannot be an accident, who blesses Abram. Uses the words, I bless you, Abraham, which pulls our attention to him. And God is faithful to Melchizedek. His name reverberates in all time and is the major figure for us to understand what it's like and what Jesus has done. If God was faithful to that small promise to Melchizedek, how much more can we count on his faithfulness for the big promise that we will inherit the kingdom of God for all eternity? Amen? If God is faithful in these small things, how much more faithful will he be in the big things? When we look at a a scripture like this and go, God was faithful, God was faithful then as I'm going through hard things in my life, what I can do is lean back in and go, I know, God, you have a track record. You care about the small things and I can lean in and I can trust you with the big things. It's tremendous. Melchizedek plays one more important role for us. Part of Abram's blessing is that he brings forward bread and wine. And the bread of wine were part of the symbols of Melchizedek's blessing for him. Today, we have the opportunity to share in communion together, where bread and wine also stand as symbols for blessing, our blessing in Jesus. Receive now the words of institution from the Apostle Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to call our communion stewards forward. And just a few housekeeping things as they get into place. Please exit your road to your left. Come back on the right. That'll keep us from running over each other. Uh, There are kneelers here. We'd love for you to take advantage of that. 
um, just to come forward and pray before God. Let me pray for us as we participate in a bigger blessing of Abraham than could ever be conceived by Melchizedek when he brought these gifts forward. And this participation that we get to have in the resurrection and life that is Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are humbled and amazed by you. At one level, your gospel is confounding. We see the love of you and the justice of you and wonder how all of these things hold together in tension. But ultimately, what we know is that you are an amazing, loving Father. And what you do is call us to come. And Lord, as we move forward to receive these elements and remember of the blood and body of Jesus broken for our sins so that we can connect with you, might you stir in our heart a newness and a wonder of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected with all that God is doing here at Redeemer, you can visit RedeemerTulsa.org or find us on Facebook or Instagram. Have a blessed week.